This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, January 21st, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Wall Street breathed a sigh of relief following a Supreme Court decision last week. The case wasn't a sexy one, but the implications for the market were huge. Cato Institute Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies, Ilya Shapiro, breaks down the case. On Tuesday, the court announced uh, its decision in one of the biggest, if not the biggest, securities case in decades. Now, this isn't a sexy case. There's there's nothing about abortion or affirmative action or some of these high-profile issues that people get excited about uh, in terms of the Supreme Court, but it has huge ramifications uh, for investors, for uh, the business community, and the economy as a whole. In the case of Stone Ridge versus uh, Scientific Atlanta, in a 5-3 decision, Justice Breyer didn't take part, the court ruled in Stone Ridge Investment Partners versus Scientific Atlanta that uh, investors suing a third party that do business with a company that uh, committed fraud against them cannot recover. In fact, the way that the this brings us to the larger point, uh, to give you some background, the way that the SEC works in general, the Security Exchange Commission, the way that our securities law works, if a company, you know, companies have to uh, disclose various things to the public uh, about their accounting, about their transactions, about their investments, all these sorts of things. If uh, they fraudulently disclose something, if they're, if they're cooking their books on their accounting or something, and the public investors rely on this to their detriment, they lose money because of this, uh, you know, fishy business, then they can sue them for securities law violations. Uh, this is, as I was, as I was saying, uh, a step beyond that. So they're trying to sue not someone who's making a public disclosure, but someone who helped the company making public disclosures commit fraud. Was what was driving this suit the same impulse that drove lawmakers to pass Sarbanes-Oxley, essentially requiring CEOs to be held personally responsible for the actions of their accountants down the line? Well, it's part of the same uh, financial atmosphere. Um, I mean, th- this particular case, Stone Ridge, the, the, the plaintiffs here, the, the investors, sued a cable provider, Charter Communications, for accounting fraud that Charter clearly committed. Four of their executives pleaded guilty, and they're, they're now in jail. And the company eventually settled with the investors for almost $150 million dollars. So that it's not that they're directly, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley, whether it was Sarbox or, I mean, the SEC regulations as they already existed worked. They got their money as they should have, and, and that's that. After that, they went after these other companies, Motorola and Scientific Atlanta, which had conspired with Charter, with this company that I've already said has you know, committed fraud and paid money for it. These companies would pay high prices for cable converter boxes, and in return, uh, the manufacturers would buy commercial time on charters cable systems. So they, you know, they were both engaging in this fraudulent transaction for both of their benefits in terms of accounting fraud. But the, again, the only uh, company actually violating securities laws here was Charter, which has already been penalized. What's the other side of that argument? Why, why would, why would that, why should they have been held liable? What's well, the best case for that? Sure. The 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 other side, what the what the investors, what their lawyers are saying is, well. Look, everybody's the bad guy here. We should be able to recover for uh, Scientific Atlanta and Motorola's role in this huge fraud that they've perpetrated on investors. Without them agreeing to do this with uh, 
with Charter, with a, with a cable company, then none of this fraud would have committed. They wouldn't have relied on these fraudulent statements and so on and so forth. Isn't that type of behavior, though, in a sense, aiding and abetting on some level? It is aiding and abetting. And in fact, uh, Congress in 1995, um, in, in their last reform of the securities, regula- or securities laws called the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, uh, PASOLRA, as it's referred to in, among lawyers, uh, specifically provided for SEC enforcement of aiding and abetting uh, securities violations. So the SEC in this case, uh, for whatever reason, you know, they pr- did whatever they did. They had some sort of inquiry. They chose not to pursue litigation. Um, and that's, that's where the case should have ended. Uh, in fact, even under the original securities regulations uh, from 1934, the SEC Act, those original laws did not provide for private rights of action by investors, even against direct purveyors of fraud. It was all meant to be enforced by the SEC. Now, over the years, the courts have read in an implied private cause of action for SEC violation. The most common one of those is called a, a, a 10B violation for fraudulently making a, a public disclosure. So they're, they're, they have this implied court-created cause of action that investors can bring. Um, and here, the, the plaintiffs were, ax- were asking the court to further create an even greater uh, aiding and abetting cause of action when Congress explicitly had the chance over the years to, um, to create such a thing and you know, had the chance in 1995 to do it with this greater reform and did not. What are the implications for the market? This case was great for the economy. I mean, you know, there, there's with the with the mortgage crisis, with with rumblings in the jobs market, all of these things going on now. We certainly didn't want a decision that would provoke further suits by uh, plaintiffs' lawyers hungry for fees against, well, against the entire marketplace that um, companies who had committed accounting fraud were dealing with. The, the surprise, I mean, this case was expected to go this way. The surprise, though, was how narrow the decision was. It was 5-3, as I said, with, with Breyer uh, not participating. It would have been 5-4, I'm sure, with his vote. Uh, and Kennedy was the swing vote, as, as he typically is. Now, this was not expected to be one of those 5-4 liberal conservative splits. This, the, the court has consistently, on business law, some of these non-sexy cases, uh, ruled by 7-2 and 9-0 and margins in favor of the business community because we don't want to open up the marketplace for this huge litigation and, and all the rest of it that, that people blame trial lawyers for. Um, with this decision, the court says, okay, we're, we're stopping these types of litigations. The SEC is the proper place to enforce um, whatever types of, of, to act against whatever f- types of fraud we have here. If it had gone the other way, I mean, the, this has tremendous implications, for example, on Enron litigation. I mean, they're suing Enron's lawyers now, they're suing Enron's, anybody that they contracted with, because in some way they had transactions relating to Enron's larger fraud. It goes the argument in the same way here that we had transactions relating to uh, the cable company's fraud. You could see a similar impulse right now in the mortgage market. A lot of politicians are arguing that we should not be merely faulting lenders, but we should also be blaming mortgage brokers, people who just securitize mortgages for the problems in the housing. In this environment, uh, plaintiffs' lawyers are going after everyone they can. And with politicians demanding people's heads with... uh, um, you know, people up in arms about all these foreclosures and interest rates going uh, through the roof when, when people's arms end and all, all of those sorts of things, uh, this might 
have given people ideas um, that, okay, we'll just go go after these mortgage companies for aiding and abetting whatever. I mean, there, there are now suits um, by the cities of Cleveland and Baltimore, for example, under different state and federal law theories relating to, to the mortgage crisis. Ilya Shapiro is a senior fellow in constitutional studies at the Cato Institute. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. Cato Weekly Video is a 10-minute segment of events at the Cato Institute. You can subscribe at our website, cato.org.